Welcome to Unapologetic Women, a podcast with Tony and Saoirse about current affairs, culture, politics, life, and how we got here. These are unscripted conversations about the things we care about, not the things that we're experts in. Hi, Saoirse. <laughs> are you free? Do you feel free to speak? Great fucking question. Oh, that's, uh, I'm sorry, pause. That's the title of our episode, I think. You just found it live. Do you feel free to speak? God, there's so many tentacles of that. Um, but yeah, so we left off last week in the, you know, we we really kind of, we flirted with it. Um, we tried to understand how the correlation of freedom of speech comes with content. And I think today I really want to focus on freedom of speech as a construct and how we're seeing that show up in 2022. I love that. And it's, it, I also think it's one of those topics also that's just so perfect for you and I as two Europeans who now live in America, work with Americas, Americas? Who work with Americans? Work with the Americans. <laughs> we work with the <laughs> Americas. Um, and if you are Europe, one of our European um, listeners, you might be wondering, like, this is such a weird one to dive into. But it really isn't. In America, it is such a big topic that, as you say, keeps creeping up. And you're right, I feel like... Every year there's another topic or issue to ground that concept of freedom of speech in. And we briefly flirted, as you said, with it with Joe Rogan last week. But God, there's there's been more like the, the latest headline source of just in Texas, they've put more than 800 books on a watch list, um, many of them mostly dealing with race and LGBTQ issues, which is absolutely wild that these are books that have been put on a watch list to potentially be banned um, because people are uncomfortable with them, because people are uncomfortable with what they teach their kids or because of the language in it, which is absolutely insane. Mm. What are some of those books, Tony? Some of those books are even as basic as the hate. Well, I say basic because I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. These are books that surprise me because it wasn't something that I would think of as a book to be put on a watch list. But it's things like The Hate You Give, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, Looking for Alaska. And they're all books that form you in one way, shape or another, especially there are books that are being read by young kids. Um mm. Well, and I, like the To Kill a Mockingbird example, or like it always strikes me. Like that is a book that I studied in high school in the UK when I went to school in the UK. And it's a book that I still to this day have on my, um, you know, top books that I will kind of go and, and pick into that and The Color Purple, I think are two of my like all time favorites to understand the extremely complicated racial history in the United States and if you eradicate that from you know the formative years of children what does it look like to have a society that doesn't have a grounding in the history of the race of this country what surprised me was some of the reasoning behind also banning some of the books around World War II and around Nazi Germany and what happened to the Jews at the time and it was just because of the foul language and the words were a bit harsh. I was like, yeah, but what happened in World War II wasn't just a bit harsh. It was absolutely terrifying and horrendous. And there's no way to make that part of history, what, palatable? Palpable? No, it is disgusting. It is despicable what happened, but there's no way no. of making that any easier. And nor should we. And I think that was what was interesting with me. I 
nor should we make that part of history easier to digest. The reason it is so powerful, the reason we need to go mm. back to those moments in history is because of their gruesomeness. It, it helps us, It for me, it helps me understand just how horrible we could be as a, as a society of what were we trying to achieve. And it was interesting because it came up for me, even just seeing this in in with Americans saying that Judaism like it isn't a race. I mean, what what do you mean? And th- there was this whole conversation about how Nazi Germany wasn't about race; it was just about banning and suppressing religion. And I was like, how can we be so fundamentally wrong about that? No. And again, I think that is the lack of historical knowledge and education about World War Two. Nazi Germany was absolutely about race. It was about targeting people based on their racial features, based on where they came from, based on their history, their genetics. It wasn't purely about religion. There were actually people who weren't Jewish, who looked Jewish, who had Jewish ancestors, who were still murdered. And so even just that disconnect that I remember seeing, I was like, how how do people not notice that this was absolutely about race? So that shocked me because I was like, "This is when you wonder why we need these books, this is why. Well, and I think... uh... A very important thing to kind of zoom out here is this isn't new. This isn't a, you know, we're now just realizing about banning books. It's to your point, it's coming back. And banned books are like, just for a definition of that, they are books uh, or printed works such as essays or plays, which are prohibited by law to which free access is not permitted by other means. And you are seeing this in countries like North Korea, where there are you know, very long lists of books that are banned for political censorship, for cultural censorship. And when you look at the United States, the most recent book that was banned was in 2010. And that was banned for a very different reason than what we're here to talk about today. But it does kind of flirt with, again, the construct of freedom of speech. And that book is a book around um, the Afghan war, the war in Afghanistan. And it was actually banned by the Department of Defense. And the the censorship that can take place, the, it's like an eradication of what happened. And it all ties into freedom of speech. And so when you think about the school boards, it is the school boards mm. right now. It is them. It is That is where people are going to to say, can I ban this book? Can you put this into your curriculum to ban this book on a state-by-state basis? Because the other thing there is we are creating insane disparities with education right so like if a child in massachusetts gets taught about racial history and lgbtq rights and what what that world looks like a child in texas may not receive that same education because books have been banned and it's very important i think to to ground in there isn't a national curriculum here these books are being banned on a state by state and a county by county level. Which is the way it's <clears throat> always been done in America, but that is also extremely scary. It's fucking terrifying. And I like, fuck, we have to draw a parallel here to, to 2020. And what's the, di- fuck, what is the difference, right? So in 2020, if we bring ourselves back to May of 2020, there were tens maybe maybe hundreds i'm not sure of the exact number of statues that were being pulled down and the right was saying this is not okay we need to remember our history and the left was saying fuck these people 
they need to come down. They are, you know, that we do not want to glorify them. And in this instance, the right is saying, this history is not the right history. This history is going to impact my child as a white child who is, you know, seeing themselves in a book as the protagonist, as the enemy, as the bad. And the left is saying, no, we need to keep this history apart. And so how how is that how is that different? We're but we're talking about history here, and the right and the left have different opinions based on the kind of output, whether it be a statue or a or a book. Maybe there isn't a difference. It's the same. Depends how you look at it, and this is where we go back and back and forth. Is it right? Is it wrong? What did I just say? What? The... Um, it's interesting how you can take a same narrative and argument and flip it on its head and be used by two different groups of people saying exactly the same thing, which is essentially what you've just described from the left and the right. My knee-jerk reaction here was to say there's no there's no difference. It's the same. It's the same thing. People are trying to ban a part of history mm. that they're uncomfortable with. And I think that's actually no. Okay. Where it's the same, where I would say there's no difference, is you're e- we are equally uncomfortable with what is put in front of us the right is saying i'm equally uncomfortable with my child reading about slavery and reading about what we did to another community my child is i don't i am uncomfortable with my child reading what happened to in nazi germany the left was saying i am deeply uncomfortable with sending potentially sending my kid to a university that has a statue erected in the middle of the school of a human being that was racist, of a human being that had slaves, of a human being that was so... I think that's the common ground, is we are all saying I am uncomfortable with what is being put in front of me. But actually now that I think of it, Saoirse, the difference is the meaning of what these bodies of works have. One is educational purposes. It's a book. You're not glorifying anyone. You're not putting anyone on a pedestal. Whereas this, when you think of a symbolism of a statue, you don't put a statue of just about anyone in the middle of somewhere. When you walk around London, which I always yeah. love, there's always statues of big, the giant statues of people. They're, they're there for a reason. You're putting there to make a statement. So I think maybe that, where, whereas I, I would have been origin, originally said just five minutes ago, I don't think there's a difference. I think the fundamental difference lies in the meaning of what these things have and the weight. And maybe that's more important, mm-hmm. the weight that they carry. It is one thing to be told, hey, it's a book you need to read so that full of facts and history so that you're aware of something. I don't think that messes with your mind as much as having to walk past the statue that is erected a big bronze statue of a man that did horrible things to basically you as an individual. I think maybe that's where the difference lies, Sorsha. But the point that you made there is with the statues, you're erasing a part of history. So maybe you don't destroy them, you put them in a museum. And again, I think there's an interesting thing there with the weight of Mm -hmm. museums. Um, When you go to the London Museum and there's a whole section about, you know, African arts and you will have people from Africa going yeah that's all our stuff that you stole from us so why is it in a museum in London why can't it be in a museum in Africa and you get into a real interesting conversation there about who owns history basically oh completely who yeah who owns history is is a fascinating topic that we should absolutely have um and we should bring an expert in to to talk about that like but when I 
Yeah, I, I think that's it. That That is the difference, right? When, when we're looking at these books, we're looking at these books from yes. the formative years of children's lives, them being able to have an understanding of what took place before them. Ultimately, and, and look, I'm not an educator, but I have to believe that this is some part of the goal, is that we don't repeat it, right? We're, we are learning and we are educating children so that they know to be a little bit more gracious if someone is you know, trying to understand whether they are identify as a woman or identify as a man, you know, like that we don't repeat ourselves, slavery doesn't come back, that racism starts to fucking disappear, right? Like that I think is the hope with the books being a part of curriculum. And then to your point with the statues, like I I think the question I really want to understand here is like, why is it that the right and the left can't listen to each other? when there are so many correlations with what they are so angry about in those moments, whether it is the book or the statue. And I do think, yes, there is a different gravitas when there is a statue in the middle of a thing that you have to walk past every day and you know that that person was a slave owner. But to your point, that is still a part of history. We do not need to glorify it. They don't need to be on that pedestal that you talked about, but it's still a part of history. And so we can't. We, I don't believe that we can be as successful as a society and move forward if we forget the history that we had. I also think you and I talk about this all the time, Sorsha, of the importance of context in being empathetic towards someone. Mm. And if you don't have the context, how can you have that empathy? If I don't, if I have jewish friends and i wonder why they're celebrating certain things or where why they're anxious towards other things you start to understand oh got it well god Sasha, i go back to and i must have bought this on the podcast but i go back to us working together working with a tech company working with engineers and explaining the importance of in europe you do not collect information such as place of worship such as race and that is deeply rooted into World War II. That is deeply rooted into a whole continent that knows what happened during Nazi Germany. And so as a result of that, you do not collect such information. And that's not going to disappear anytime soon. The continent as a whole is healing and has been healing for the last 50 years. But an American cannot understand that visceral reaction that a European, especially someone in Germany, France or Belgium, would have to, no, I don't give out information about place of worship. Absolutely not. And so there's something there about that empathy and that context to what you're saying of like, we need these books, we need these statues to start to understand those building blocks of how we got here. I mean, the question you and I ask all the time, how did we get here? Mm. Well, and it's not like there isn't opposition to the parents that are bringing these books into school committees across the country and i like the american library association has been a vocal vocally like anti removing books from our uh, curriculum from our public libraries but they've been ignored and, and disregarded in a lot of instances and i think there has to be a common understanding of like, mm. why? Why is it happening? Why are we identifying certain books? And and what is it that 
what is it that the parents actually need or the activists actually want in school and within education? Because right now we're in such a polarized moment that an elected official is worried about when they're next going to run for office. And if the 73 parents that come to the school board or the local city um, hearing are saying, if you don't remove this book from curriculum, you will be out of a job come the next election. When education is tied to... How does that work? When education is tied so closely to the next election cycle is wild. Exactly. It's the school committees. And you're so good with that, with like the local, regional aspects of this and how it ties to the everyday political life. You you bring up, go for it. Well, and no, I'm going to move us into so another group. Before you move us into, I do think there's something that we've sort of skirted on that is just worth highlighting is there are two types of books here that we've been talking about that Mm. books are being banned there is the historical stuff that people are so which i was always shocked about like the language and it's very you know it's horrendous for our kids to have to read through this and like that's just history and everything you just talked about about not repeating it and there's also this body of work and these books that sit that talk about racism, that talk about gender, that talk about sexual exploration at a time where everything is shifting, at a time where we are finally hearing people say, hey, hold on a minute, basically gender is a social construct. It's not something that's actually as medically assigned as we might have thought. And when you think of everyone who is going, as you said, like in these formative years, it is good for kids to read about racism, to read about gender as a social construct to read about sexual exploration because where else do they go and I remember my dad always saying this from a different perspective of he always sent me to school to have school lunches basically he's like I can guarantee you'll have a hot meal a day at least there being a single dad working crazy hours and so I think of it I know that's a weird parallel but I think of it of like school has to be the place where you are guaranteed something that you may or may not get at home depending on who you are and where you are in society not every kid can guarantee that their parents have a whole swath of books. Not every parent has a library at home. Not every kid can be guaranteed that same education at home as at school. So for me, it's so important that school does. And I know that people think very differently on this, but my fundamental belief is school is a place where you should be able to learn everything you want to learn about. And so for me, the idea of banning books in school just scares the living crap out of me. Because we all have our different upbringings. So there's just something really interesting down what you said. It is about forming and understanding the context of where we are and how we got here. And it is about the future as well. Mm. Of I'm in these years, as you were saying, of being these are formative years. Where can I go to get all of this information if I might not get it at home? Well, and there's a direct correlation between book banning and book burning. Like we've touched on the historical books as it pertains to Nazi Germany. But Nazi Germany, we saw book burning as a as a grounding in taking away people's freedoms and their ability to be educated and to you know engage in culture and poetry and art it was it was a form of punishment and um wow there is a campaign of parents and activists and authors that has just kind of sprung up which is called the book bang book ban buster love it bbb um, just yeah just <laughs> fucking phenomenal um But so these folks are grounding in this construct, right, of there is a straight line from book banning to book burning. And their whole aim here is to fight against banning books from schools and libraries, point blank. The the fight that they are trying to push forward, the agenda that they are trying to run with, 
is unfortunately partisan and when we think about who has the right to talk and who has the loudest yeah. voice, we can't not think about the episode we talked in last week with Joe Rogan and his louder audience. But the this group, you know, there is definitely some nonpartisanship. You can we'll we'll share it in the episode summary, but like it is predominantly left. And so what is their choice of platform? Ah. How do they choose to disseminate their information? What is the technology that they're going to lean into to ensure that more and more people know about what they're doing? Because at the end of the day, we live in a moment where you are, yes, still physically apart from each other, but you have never been more connected. Mm. And to be that connected, you have to have a technology choice where you're going to disseminate your information. And I think we have to look at this in parallel to the technologies that are being held accountable for the content that is on their platforms. And we talked about it with Spotify. We also saw Substack coming out last week, the week before on their stance on freedom of speech. And it's one, right? They went on complete under fire, right? And their stance on freedom of speech is is not the sexy left-leaning current feeling as it pertains to freedom of speech and so you come under attack and get called a republican and i think in both uh, you know when you and i work together and when you are being attacked by both sides of the aisle it feels like you're doing something right in my personal opinion and that's what i'm seeing substack right now they are being attacked from both sides of the aisle because they truly believe in the construct of freedom of speech and how that then is on their platform because they believe in freedom of speech. They allow for individuals to write what they believe as long as it is added that it is not going against their terms of service. And this is the debate that we constantly come back to. What's also telling is when you have that stance as a platform of we do not make editorial choices. We are a platform that provides a piece of software that helps people publish something, Mm. whether that's a website, whether that's a podcast, whether that's a newsletter, it automatically attracts all of the extreme point of views that have been banned from platforms. And so the direct result of that is you become become basically the go-to place for extreme views on medical things, race, gender, sexuality, you name it, which then means you become kind of like the gatekeeper of all of these often, let's not kid ourselves, often horrendous point of views. Now, do I believe that people should be allowed to have these point of views? Yeah, if they are on their own newsletter and they're sending them to dopey. Do I agree with them? Absolutely not. But that's what becomes really interesting with these platforms is they become the go-to. And I read a piece, I mean, The Guardian came out with a pretty scathing piece um, a couple of days ago about a group of vaccine skeptic writers. So they are generating 2.5, and they're on a newsletter, sorry, vaccine skeptic writers Mm. writing a newsletter, I think it's weekly, using Substack as their go-to platform, which is basically like a MailChimp um, that creates the software to really easily produce podcast, um, really easily produce newsletters and put them out in the world. They are generating, this newsletter is generating $2.5 million in revenue. 
The revenue model of Substack is the writers make 90% of the revenue, 10% revenue. of the revenue goes to Substack, and wow. then there's 1% or 2% that goes to the payment um, provider, such as Stripe or PayPal or whatever it is. But that means that millions of people are paying mm-hmm. $5, $3, $6 a month to receive a newsletter specifically on vaccine skeptics, from vaccine skeptics, which again, I tie back to Joe Rogan. For me, the biggest thing is, why are there millions of people willing to give their time and their money to a thing that they don't believe they are getting elsewhere from the mainstream media? For me, that is absolutely fascinating. So when Substack came out to identify and say their piece on on where they stand... Um, there is there is a specific piece that actually correlates exactly with what you're talking about, which reads, people already mistrust institutions, media, and each other. Knowing that dissonating views are being suppressed makes that mistrust worse. Withstanding scrutiny makes truth stronger, not weaker. And I think this is a very, in my opinion, beautiful way to articulate it is not, to your point in last week's episode or the week before, to your point around, it is not the like scary Silicon Valley CEO that's sitting there to think about how they can make money. It's actually a conscious decision because we know that right now we live in a very polarized society. It's not the most polarized we've ever been, Absolutely. but it's very polarized. And you layer in the addition of technology to that, you're getting access to information at a rate that you've never been able to before and it takes a fucking conscious and very intentional person to read both sides of it and to not just want to identify with what they want to believe coming back to again the trust and i think they really do beautifully share that there is a deep mistrust right now across the globe in public institutions whether that be elected officials or media companies And so if you find your person, whether that be a vaccine skeptic or a Joe Rogan or a fucking Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey, wow, Winfrey, um, then that's your person. That's who you're going to continue to believe and trust. So here's where Substack falls apart for me. And I use them like just I I use them for my newsletter, which I have to kick off again at some point because I've clearly been on a hiatus. Um. I love the, the the software and the tools that they use. And as a platform, yes, everything that you've just said, everything that I've just laid out, I think works. Where it starts falling apart with me is where they end up in the similar bucket as Spotify, where they have a Substack Pro model, where they basically pay for writers to write on Substack. They are giving writers an annual fee of 100,000, 150,000, sometimes 300,000. And I think, again, like that is similar to Joe Rogan of you have all of a sudden moved away from being a neutral platform to actually I've made an editorial choice to handpick a specific writer, a specific journalist to write on your platform. And you are also going to equip them with legal support, economic support, whatever that may be. And I think that's where, for me, it kind of starts falling apart. And it starts to be, for me, end up in the same bucket as Spotify, where I question I everything there is true. And yet now, for me, you have a bigger responsibility than you used to when you were just a platform. Now you are also making editorial choices. 
And so now for me, that stance of we are just the technology, we are just a platform. No, I'm sorry. No, you're not. You've made a couple of editorial choices. You are profiting from those also business choices you've made. Now you are starting to act a little bit more like a publisher, i.e. a bit more like a New York Times. And I think that's where the conversation gets really gray and complicated. And what I find fascinating is, should I treat you as a New York Times? Because let's not forget, New York Times have to obey by certain rules and regulations. There are certain things they cannot publish. There are certain steps they have to go to to make sure that what they are putting out there is factually accurate. And so that's where it becomes really interesting. And so, yes, on the mistrust, but I think Substack could also, in 10 years down the line or five years down the line, someone is going to write something similar about Substack saying, we've lost trust in Substack because of, I can just see the headline. So that's for me where it becomes really interesting, which is why I the, we talked about this when we worked together of just like, what's your business model? We talked about it with Facebook. Facebook can't say they're there to build community when you make money off of your users and yads. That you can't, sorry, no, you can't build community if the people who you're building community with is your source of income, is your profit. So, is your profit? Yeah. Yeah. Just to go back to what you're talking about with Substack, I, I don't know enough about their pro business model versus their free business model. Would it, and maybe this is too in the weeds, but would it make a difference to you if Substack, the entity, was a platform and then within Substack they had a separate LLC, let's call it, that was their editorial team that was like held to, you know, they actually came out and said this is a different standard, but Substack as a whole is it. I think, and again, I think it's a little similar with Spotify, but where it becomes blurry is they are subsidizing individual writers that they select and they are promoting within their platform if you go on the Substack homepage it says it says the top 10 writers of the week that's where it gets tricky because there's a human being inside of Substack who said yes I like that love that love that person too and they are elevating those voices even more and the top 10 are the paid ones they're not free or are they a mixture they're a mixture, I believe. I haven't looked recently. I know it's shifted. Um, mm. But to your point, there is an edu- there's an there's two pieces. There's an editorial decision and an editorial stance that has been made. And there is compensation. And similar to Spotify, they made a business decision with Joe Rogan spending 100 million. And of course, they're going to promote it to get more people to it. And at that point, you are no longer just a platform. So I really like your idea of what they are incredibly good at is creating the tools and the platforms and the software for the many to have a voice, which hell yes, I'm here for. Yep. But people know that when they sign up to Tony Substack, um, which is free, by the way, Substack isn't making a profit because my newsletter is free. So there is no money to be made. I'm not paying for the software. The software is free for use, um, which is great. No one's making any money. There's no money exchanging any hands. But people know they're not coming to me for a journalistic opinion. They're just coming for TCB's you know, opinions yep. of the day. So the other piece I think that was very interesting to me in the Substack thing, which pulled on a thread that I think is really the past five years, which is they do not make decisions on PR. And how I read that, again, I didn't write anything with Substack. I'm I'm not affiliated with them by any means. But how I read that is you're talking about the, as a corporation in this day and age, you are expected to have an opinion on 
political moments, on cultural moments. And is that right? I really, it was a breath of fresh air, in my opinion, that a corporation came out and said, we actually don't make decisions as a business based on what's happening in the news. We do not take PR pressure into consideration. And I I found that to be extremely refreshing. Um, And I wonder, like, do you think that's right? Like, should we be hearing more of that from other corporations? I have a weird, I think, um, relationship to PR pressure because I've been on the side of the yeah and i know both sides same yeah here's the thing is there's pr pressure of oh shit from a business perspective we're going to lose a lot of clients and a lot of money if we don't do what the media is asking us to do and often especially in tech the tech media doesn't always know better because they've never worked a day in their life in technology they don't actually always understand the technology i don't envy them because the technology is moving so so fast i will never forget one of my good friends who says it was so easier for me to be on the financial beat because financial at least finances don't change every two months whereas in technology the software available the technology available is constantly changing so it's hard for us to keep up so i have little empathy there of journalists of journalists on their high horse telling tech companies that they're bad and evil and they should change and this is how we're going to get and putting that pressure and then rallying the troops and then you get into that clicktivism space which becomes very interesting which I'm not against either but I think it's a dangerous cycle of like that flash in the pan and then I also know that there are some instances where that journalistic integrity and journalists like shining a light on something that is deeply wrong is so valuable and important um, which then goes back for me of just like we as individuals have a responsibility to question everything which becomes fucking exhausting and tiring but we really do um and i think this is why i have an issue specifically with tech journalism and tech media is it is so hard to understand and they are so often trying to be seen as the yeah. knight in shining armor shining a light on big bad tech when they have never worked a day in their life in technology companies and so they don't understand half of what's going on. Um, so it's interesting that journalistic, that peer pressure from the journalistic space, I actually agree with in like politics and elsewhere. I have a really hard time when it comes to technology. And it may be like, that's maybe a naive point of view and a very sort of like linear way of looking at it because I've been on both sides of that. Mm. So I don't know where I sit. No, I, I, it's helpful to think about that though, because... Like, I think right now is a, good, is a really good time to think about, like, Black History Month started 1st of Feb, and here we are in February, and, you know, how many corporations came out 1st of Feb with their own, you know, two cents on the history of Black History Month or, or what it was to them? And I, that is kind of how I read through the lines there of Substack, is, like, we're not making our decisions on what you know, what moment, what people think we should be doing in this moment as, you know, I would love to see if they came out as Black History Month doing, you know, lifting up the voices of Black authors in their community. That would be fantastic. And I don't actually know what they're doing. I don't follow Substack's, you know, professional brand particularly close. But I think there there is a lot of power in identifying as a corporation that you are not going to bend to the will of the media when we live in this moment of deep polarization and trying to basically corral your consumers, the people who have the purchasing power, based on what you think is going to impact them from a cultural or a political perspective. And 
And there's something there that you said that ties to Black History Month, which I think is really powerful, Sorsha, is that platforms like Substack really do allow for people to have a voice and to have a platform and to have a space to grow an audience and own that audience. So every person who subscribes to my newsletter, when I leave Substack, I leave with all of that data, Mm. all of that information, and I can then go and build something else elsewhere. It's not Substacks. And again, when you look at people like me, you talk to black authors and black journalists, you talk to the LGBTQ community, and they will say, I am not who is being hired as a journalist at the New York Times. I am not who is being hired at the a journalist at the Washington Post. It is the same people that get hired again and again. And God, you can tie this in a very weird parallel to the story that is happening right now with the NFL and black coaches that are not being hired. And it does not make sense when 70% of the players in the NFL are black. Why are there so few black players? Or why are there so few black coaches? And there's something there happening again. It's just like, it is not us that is being hired and given the jobs. It is the same white men who have been in that space. So there is something that I deeply love and will fight for with what is the likes of Stabstack is doing is they are allowing people who are not in the status mm. quo, they are allowing people who normally do not get the job to be what they want to be, whether that's a writer, a journalist. And I think that is incredible and that should not be lost. No. And honestly, similar to last week, like I think we should wrap here because we're getting into the space of the deep wounds that polarization can cause and what it looks like to ban books from schools what it looks like to not get a job because you are not a part of that other person's group and you know I'm really excited that next week we're going to have the opportunity to talk to Ali Goldsworth uh, about all of her work so I think we should you know close out on this idea of do you feel free to speak we made it one more episode done thanks so much for tuning in and listening along with tony and i if you liked it please do share it with your friends and family or give us a review on whatever you listen to for your podcasts